The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Sporkbox. Here are your headlines this morning. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq see their worst week since March, while a trio of Fed officials reinforce the higher for longer signals from the U.S. Central Bank. Evergrande shares plunge as the embattled Chinese property developer says it's unable to issue new debt amid a probe into one of its subsidiaries. Uh, elsewhere, though, a breakthrough in Hollywood as the writers' union agrees a deal with the major studios. But in Detroit, auto workers expand their strike, with the president, Mr. Biden, set to join them tomorrow. President Biden is proud to be the most unapologetically pro-worker, pro-union president we've had. And uh, that's going to be on display, I think, when he's on those picket lines. Elsewhere, we've got the EU's Trade Commissioner, Valdis Dombrovskis, saying China could do a lot to help reduce Europe's perception of risk from the country, but does stress that Brussels won't seek to cut off its relationship with Beijing. And 40,000 people take to the streets of Madrid in protest against plans by Prime Minister Sanchez to offer amnesty to Catalan separatists. The country's vice president tells CNBC she's confident Sanchez will be reinstated as head of the government. I'm confident that Pedro will manage to have the support of the great majority in case he has the opportunity to get this, this, this opportunity in the, in the Congress, in the Parliament, and always paying attention and being careful on how to build progress for all. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. I, I want to tip my hat to the gallery already today because there are gremlins and yet that was seamless performance by Adam and his magnificent team as well. So, um, yeah, did you have a good weekend? Nobody noticed a thing. Yes, it was Nobody lovely, wasn't it? noticed a thing at all. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, look, I, I think these, the week ahead is almost as fascinating as the week we've just had yeah, as well. There was a lot to chew over, right? There was the strikes. Yes. We've got this uh, yes. countdown to potential government shutdown. Yes. We've got that rally in oil prices. And, of course, all the central banks telling us higher for longer. So really just yeah. hold your breath and yeah. wait at this point. Because it was this time last week that you and I were pontificating over the word Goldilocks as mm. well. Uh, and look, whilst there is a lot to celebrate in the fact that there is a lot of strength economically despite all the challenges we are seeing, there are concerns on the markets, and you're going to beautifully explain that in a few moments' time to the viewers, but the markets just didn't, net-net didn't like what they're seeing at the moment. Maybe they're just worried about the valuations all of a sudden, which, which comes around every now and again, doesn't it? Momentum yeah. fades and valuations become a little bit realer. I've got to say, this morning's a little bit frustrating looking at the news flow. It feels as though we've just got a lot more of the same that we just have to muddle through. Yeah. You know, This is quite different yeah. to what we've had every other day, every other week for a number of years where we've kicked from one big story to the next. But what we've got a challenging series of numbers still. We've got to be very patient here for the central banks waiting to see that inflation number come down. And 
and some very difficult um, you know, interactions in the background. The strikes, don't forget, some of this around labour pay conditions. Again, people are frustrated that prices are going up and they want compensation for it. They're worried about disruption, so they want to make sure they have you know, a secure future. So I think at this point, as we start Monday, it's a little bit frustrating. It's going to be frustrating for investors too in terms of placing some bets from here. Yeah, yeah. But as, as you say, the markets on Friday, more of the same, wasn't it really? Yeah, I might just take you to some of the action that we saw in that Friday session. We saw uh, really just a downbeat finish across the board, modestly lower, not huge direction again, but investors just turning uh, again cautious for that Friday trade. You saw it across the course of the trading week. We were weaker for that uh, period of time. You could see for the Dow over the week down 1.9% versus about 36 coming off the Nasdaq. So uh, Friday session just contributing to the losses for the trading week. In terms of where we're now at for the likes of the Nasdaq, roughly about 18.5% off its record high. So there has been some give back in the tech sector. Now, in terms of actual performance at a sector level last week, you did see a little bit of an upside performance for tech over the course of the Friday trade. But to the downside, it was consumer discretionary where you saw a lot of the pain. I mentioned the oil story, the $90 oil and whether we're going back to $100 a barrel. The market seizing on that narrative and certainly hopes that uh, the fading oil story would help out the inflation story, but also shield the consumer. Is that likely at this point? Let's peel away from the, the index and take a look at treasuries. We uh, saw a March high too on a lot of these treasuries in the States from the 2 to the 10 over the course of last week. So we added a, a couple of basis points all round. Uh, so we're at uh, 5.03 as we wrapped up about a week prior on that two-year. We marched up by about eight odd basis points over the course of the trading week. So still some movement in a short period of time and also on that 10-year. To the dollar and uh, what we're talking about here, the high yield stories, the market again assumes that the central bank will not not be cutting as much as it had hoped last week of the four rate hikes priced in for next year over in the stage just sliced back to two and the market uh, seeing a reaction too from other central banks where we had some on hold some still hiking but uh, the tone very much changing from some of these central banks one of them, of course, Bank of England. A little bit disappointing for some of those on the FX trade. 122.41, morning session, trying to catch a bid, but we did lose some territory last week. Euro dollar as well, we're 106.5 this morning. Dollar yen is still the one to watch. The market is very, very cautious around intervention from here. And in change to language, even though we had a straight bat from the Bank of Japan last week, the market is looking at this pair very closely. Dollar yen this morning, flatlining 148.35, dollar yuan a little bit firmer. When it comes to WTI and Brexit, I mentioned the, the elevated levels and you can see Brent marching towards that $100 mark. We're just off the 94 level at this point, another half of a percent plus in the green. Four tens up on WTI and uh, perched above the 90 level. To the Asian markets, picking up on the oil story, a lot of caution to around the property developers out of the Chinese market today. We mentioned the Evergrande story in the headlines, not being able to issue new debt. That's a concern already sitting on a huge debt pile as well. So some of the big property developers are fading on that Hong Kong and Chinese market today. Elsewhere, we do have a patch of green over on the Japanese stock market. We're up eight-tenths of a percent and on the Australian market in lockstep with the Chinese market. Don't forget, there is a week-long closure coming up for the Chinese market when we get towards the end of the week. So there's already a bit of caution coming into the mix ahead of that event. Now to the opening calls here in Europe. The early trade is showing us red arrows, a continuation of how we closed out that Friday trade. We were down roughly about a third of a percent on the benchmark, the stock share of 600, also sliding with other global markets last week, down roughly about 1.9% on the benchmark. So the red ink likely to continue this morning as we pick up where we left off, Steve. I'm just going to break off from our what we should be doing it because I've just got an excellent 
piece that's come in my inbox from Spencer Hill. And it really tallies uh, with what you and I were just talking about. Now, Spencer Hill is one of the, the team of Goldman Sachs um, analysts and economists looking at the US economy on the back of a lot of the headwinds we were talking about. And one of the big headwinds is the fact that the oil price has jumped through the roof, isn't it? From a high 60s level for WTI to $89 to $90 a barrel. I thought this is this is actually quite an optimistic piece, and that's why I kind of thought I'd do it, given our slightly pessimistic tone to our last chat. Uh, Spencer Hill was saying the following. Oil prices have jumped 20 bucks a barrel or more than uh, since June, contributing to a pickup in headline inflation and sharpening investor focus on the health of the U.S. consumer and the Fed's next move. Now, we forecast that cons- this is over at Goldman Sachs. It's brand new. This is hot off the wires this morning, guys. We forecast that consumption growth will slow in the, th- in the fall and winter. Well, that seems fairly logical. But we think higher oil prices are unlikely to cause uh, consumer spending and GDP to decline. And they've given three reasons. I'll do it very quickly. The magnitude of the oil price is small. One could argue about that, but they say that. Uh, Two, the GDP headwind from higher gasoline prices should be partially offset from higher energy sector capex and lower electricity prices. We also believe, and the third point here is, the Fed is unlikely to tighten, and this really tallies in with what we're about to say next, the Fed is unlikely to tighten policy in response to higher prices. And that's a bold call, isn't it? Because people are worried about what it means for it. But unlikely, especially at a time when core inflation and inflation expectations are falling as well. So that's just a, I just wanted to put that in because I thought it was, it was a very important contribution, brand new from Goldman Sachs this yeah. morning as well, just saying actually things are probably not as bad on the, on the economy and the consumer on the back of the energy price rises that a lot of us, including us, are talking about. The question is whether that oil price stays high and sticks around and whether that contributes over a longer story on the yeah. second round effects. But I was looking at a separate piece saying, look, what does the consumer pull back on at this point? And some of the economists are worried it's at restaurants, travel, other areas where you've, you've seen some of the, the slight turn in the conditions. But is that a bad thing? I mean, we've been talking about services being too strong at this point in the cycle anyway. Uh, the ticket prices, for instance, on travel, demand still held up. Some Restaurants as well. Is, that the, is it a bad uh, thing uh, if oil slows down some of that? And you'll have to excuse me because I was reading a piece. Did you mention what consumer discretionary did last week? Yes, six plus percent yeah, down. Yeah, mm. yeah. Apologies for not listening to every word. So I was trying to, I, <laughs> no, I was no, trying I to pour I through just, the report at the I same didn't time. I mentioned the percentage drop, but I did say it yeah. was one of the weakest. Yeah, yeah, huge. Yeah, six well, look, this this tallies beautifully. I have to say what we're talking about with with the next uh, little read I'm going to give you because the Fed's effort. OMC voted, as you know, to hold rates last week. But some officials have since come out. And honestly, a whole cacophony of officials. I don't know what the the plural is for Fed officials, but let's go with cacophony. Uh, But some officials have since come out to warn more tightening could be on the cards. So let's go through a few. Uh, Fed Governor Michelle Bowman said it would be, quote, appropriate to raise rates further to battle stubborn inflation. She also warned that the process of bringing inflation down could be slow. Meanwhile, we saw um, Susan Collins, she of the Boston Fed, she's the president there, uh, said further interest rate rises were, quote, certainly not off the table, adding it was way too soon to be confident about the trajectory. I don't like the word trajectory. It's a hard one to say, isn't it? Trajectory of inflation, uh, to be confident about that. And the San Francisco Fed president, Mary Daly, said the central bank needed to see more data to decide on the next move. Well, as Karen was saying as well, we've got a whole host of data this week after a week of central bank moves. Attention now turning to macroeconomic data. In the United States, investors will be watching out for the PCE price index data, as well as the final reading of the second quarter GDP. And in Europe, the spotlight will be on inflation data out of Germany, France, Spain and Italy. 
as well as the broader euro area. More macroeconomic data will also be released later this week, including the IFO business climate reading. Oh, it's going to be absolutely fascinating, genuinely, uh, as well as the German retail sales and industrial production. Well, we've done a little bit of chat about the week ahead as well. But again, Fed speakers, the, the, the shackles are off now because the Fed decision is in the rearview mirror as well. Uh, and, and to a man and to a woman, they are saying 100%, well, what we expected. And this is why I think the market sometimes gets ahead of its skis, so to speak. We're coming into winter, getting ahead of its skis because they're saying, OK, well, we've had a pause, thank goodness. But as from the excellent data we've already given to this parish who watch us in the mornings as well uh, over last weeks and months as well, a pause and a skip is not necessarily an end to the rate hiking cycle. And it happens so many times in history that the market gets ahead of those aforementioned skis because it thinks a pause or a skip is the end. And time and time again, it comes back to to haunt uh, investors because it isn't necessarily the case. I guess a good example of that was over the course of last week with the Bank of England's messaging. Looked like that was a pause to then reverse, not a skip or a hop. When it comes to the data, though, I think it's still quite key this week. I mean, we could get a wildcard number when it comes to the PCE. What we saw last time, right, we had that uh, core number 4.2% on annual basis versus 4.1% in June. So any movement there could be quite interesting in terms of the market looking for some fluidity and to get us away from that patient story from a central bank wanting to high, uh, keep rates high for longer. So that'll be really interesting, I think, on the data front. But to me, it's the mix of different events and where we started out the show. There are so many different factors from strike action, whether some of that's ending at some point, but the flow and effect from the auto workers strike is going to be across the economy. The shutdown, is that really a prospect this time round? The uncertainty that could come with the shutdown at this point, the oil story. And we didn't even mention that holiday for student loans that uh, is rolling off and what that could do to spending patterns for a portion of the population that's been willing to spend lately. So I think there are big questions whether, you know, the Wall Street Journal had a great piece on whether there would be uh, a market or an economy rattled by all of these pieces coming together, saying one event typically wouldn't have enough of an impact, yeah. but all fall together. It's what, like triple witching on markets or something like that. And you get all these events that happen at once then you could have a problem. That, that's really interesting. You should say that. I, I'll just say this briefly. I wasn't going to say any more. But, but, but it's interesting. There's a lot of individual events out there as well, which the market is brushing off. You know, mm. concern about China and the property sector. And there's another Evergrande story today, which we'll come to a little bit later on, about the extraordinary events we've seen in Turkey, you know, the oscillation there as well. Uh, and so that you could pick out lots of these individual type situations and say, oh, that actually will create some form of domino effect, some form of uh, follow through, um, which will ripple through markets and create a problem. But actually, the market has evaluated and has done a very good job of looking at these individual geopolitical economic events and saying, oh, it's just one off, it's just that. And it's isolated. So they've ring fenced. And I think that's fascinating what you're saying, that actually confluence of events now, three or four events, actually could create a wider market move because they're coming together at a time when sentiment is so poor. Yeah, and there are links here, let's face it, the cost of credit and how that impacts people's salaries, what they yeah. spend the shops, then what central banks decide to do. I mean, and then, of course, the demand for oil story as well. I must it's, ask you one more question before we move on. Yes. Did you have a lovely weekend? I had a great weekend. Oh, yeah. A bit you, of golfing. Because, you, I mean, you are a golfer now, but you're not actually a, a sports fan, are you? <laughs> Depends on the sport. Did I, did no, I no, miss a key one? No, no, I, I, you, you, you may, may, may miss a rather interesting event for your, for your countrymen. Right. So it wasn't cricket this time, was it? No, 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 you, you, you were doing badly at another sport. Oh, right. Really badly. So it's not netball? No, um, oval ball, about okay. this size. Basketball? World Cup. Oh, no, no, no. 
That's a round ball. Did you, did you just do that? That's a round ball. Yeah, basketball tends to be a round ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, oval. sacrilege to the Jordans and Johnsons Sorry. as well. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Ball. Wales played something with the oval ball. Uh, rugby, rugby World Cup. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. great. Uh, what, Wales? Yeah. Thrashed you. I did that. Okay. The biggest thrashing well, ever. Well done, Wales. Ever. Well done. <laughs> we'll, we'll have another go next time. Yeah, okay. Anyway, it's a punishing start for the week for, well, uh, for Australian rugby players, but also for Evergrande. Apparently, yes, it was. And also for Evergrande, which, of course, is big for markets, with shares on track for their worst daily performance since August, after the company said it was unable to issue new debt amid an ongoing investigation into one of its subsidiaries, casting fresh doubt on its ability to restructure. It's the latest blow for the world's most indebted company, days after police detained staff at its wealth management unit. Shares in the firm's subsidiaries are also sustaining heavy losses. Our colleague Emily filed this report. Shares of Evergrande lose almost a quarter of its value after the property developer said it was unable to issue new debt under its debt restructuring plan as a result of an ongoing investigation into its flagship onshore unit, Hangda Real Estate. This throws into question the restructuring plans for $22.7 billion of offshore debt, where creditors have a basket of options to swap debt for new bonds and equity linked to investments backed by Evergrande stock. Evergrande's listed subsidiaries also sink, with its NEV unit down as much as 23%, property services down more than 10%. All three stocks have lost more than 70% of their value year to date. The troubles at Evergrande comes just a week after police detained some of its staff from its wealth management unit. The developer issued a statement earlier saying there would be no impact to its business operations. That's the latest from Hong Kong. I'm Emily Tan. Back to you. So I'm on one bear of the... With, bear with us. <laughs> so it's not just me, I, I don't think. It I'm is I'm on one of the you. main websites out of Australia, which is big Murdoch just... Press paper, right? There is nothing on here on the whole front page about Australia versus Wales. Maybe it's just irrelevant for Aussies when it comes to sports. And you call us whinging poms? <laughs> I can't see it anywhere. I haven't, I'll go to the sports page. Maybe that will make a difference. But on the main page, if this were a main UK landing page, I've got to say it would be covered with sporting news. Oh, no, oh, we do have something, but that is NRL, and I'm not sure that is Wales. No, that's not it. Um, probably a different shape ball. State of yet. origin. Uh, coming up on the show, uh, steady as she goes, ECB governing uh, council member Francois Villore de Gallo calls for patience in the fight against inflation. Guess what? We're going to speak exclusively with Du Gallo a little later on in programming. Uh, due to happen at 9.40 Central European time. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. About this one. The French President Emmanuel Macron has announced measures aimed at bringing down fuel prices. The French government will demand the fuel industry sells at cost. How does that work? How do you demand your industry sells at cost? I'll, I'll move on. Uh, and would also provide aid to households most affected by inflation. You, I'll break into this. I'll come back to it. Do you remember last week you and I had a brilliant guest on about um, 
uh, carbon markets mm -hmm. and about subsidies mm -hmm. uh, and how perhaps in order to help the uh, the, the embryonic uh, renewable industries you perhaps need to get some subsidy perhaps compared but this is exactly what we were talking about when the guests and I actually probably concurred uh, about um, subsidy for the fuel industry as well for hydrocarbons I mean I'll go back on that a little bit again just because this is this is a really important point because the industry, the hydrocarbon industry, keeps getting a form of subsidy. It's not called subsidy, but but again, it encourages use. Look, in, encouraging the industry to sell at cost. Well, how's an industry going to make money and actually create investment if it sells at cost? Uh, and would also provide aid to households most affected by inflation. So, what's aid to households? That's a, that's a price cap in some ways, is it, or some form of mechanism to get money back to the customers? Again, it's a very important debate, and I appreciate the cost of living concerns that many have. But Macron said it was important the government prevented what he called abusive margins on refining. Well, is abusive margin no margin then, if that's what you're saying, if they've got to sell it at cost? I find that really confusing. I, we, well, we got Total was saying that they had ruled out selling at a loss. So I don't well, know if this is a win for industry. I think it gets rid of some of the windfall taxes, doesn't it? But if we... <sighs> it's the opposite of that. It's a just different way of tackling the industry by yeah. forcing the price lower rather than allowing the price to go higher and then tackling on the other Does side. Does the government the have a role tax. in this? Does the, should the government have a role well, in this? Well, it's in other countries, just in a different form, right? ECB Governing Council member Francois villaret Diglo has argued the central bank should maintain high interest rates to control inflation, saying patience is more important than raising rates further. Annetta joins us with more on this. Annetta, we know that uh, was a huge wash-up of central bank activity last week and everybody was looking for clues. Just tell us what uh, villaret Diglo is telling us about central banking here. We don't know actually yet what he's going to tell us today because clearly his speech will only be delivered a little bit later and we're going to speak to him exclusively at roughly 9.40 local time. But we, what we know so far is what, we, what he has said in a recent interview with the French uh, TV channel BFM that he says that the, the, the interest rate level which we are currently at should maintain at that level for uh, a longer period of time and that should be restrictive enough to bring down it inflation, it's another clear signal that the ECB might actually be really done. If you remember the press conference of the ECB, Christine Lagarde didn't really want to say that this it is, it is, is that's it, uh, in terms of raising interest rates, and that kind of reflected probably the the split in the governing council, whereas the introductory statement was probably most, yeah, one could actually argue that they were saying that the level where we are is enough. During the press conference Q&A, she was saying that we are not done with raising rates. So that was a bit of a confusing communication from the ECB. But more and more what we're hearing from, from the central bank and from the various governors, uh, especially also from Bilouadou Gallo, who was a very, of course, influential governor in the governing council, because France is a big uh, member country of the euro area, um, is that the ECB should be done uh, at that interest rate level. Because clearly we are seeing um, severe effect on the economy already taking place and mind you um, interest rate rises actually only take its full effect after nine months or even a little bit longer so that record 
tightening, which we have witnessed um, from the ECB, but of course also from other central banks, will only really take its effect during the course of next year. What we're currently already seeing, and that is also on top of the mind of those central bankers, is that the euro area economy is going down faster than expected. We've seen recent, even the labor market prints are showing some sign of weaknesses, and that is a very crucial factor. Of course, we still have underlying price pressure building up in some sub-segments, but I guess uh, the message is quite clear that those central bankers in the euro area do prefer to stay put and wait until they actually do see the effects of those, this record tightening of interest rates uh, because clearly the economy is turning south and um, over the winter period sectors like the construction sector, which is of course important to many economies, will um, feel the brunt even, um, even more than already um, what we're already seeing in the figures. And that's uh, excellent. Uh, no pressure whatsoever, but your interview is going to be the highlight of my morning. So um, I'm sure it'll be fantastic. And <laughs> Nettie <laughs> will speak to Francois Villeroy de Gallo later on this morning. Tune in. We think that one's going to uh, hit air at 9.40 Central European time, but um, that's what time we're planning on it anyway. And Karen and I will just put our feet back uh, and put our feet up and just watch Watch that interview and uh, the fascinating things that will come from it. Anyway, an estimated 40,000 people, I saw some people saying it was 60, but 40 to 60,000 people protested in Madrid on Sunday against possible plans by the acting Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez to grant amnesty to Catalan separatists. Exiled former Catalonia leader Carles Puigdemont is demanding charges be dropped in return for his support which could see Sanchez remain in power despite not winning July's election. Meanwhile, Alberto Nunes Fejo uh, faces his first vote to become prime minister on Wednesday. Uh, it's a very complicated situation, but luckily we have uh, lots of coverage of this as well from uh, our very own Charlotte. The Spanish vice president and minister for ecological transition is Teresa Rivera, and she told Charlotte that she's fully behind Pedro Sanchez. On one hand, I'm worried of counting on a candidate uh, that uh, calls himself a centrist, but has been insulting and eroding the basis of uh, persistence with many democratic parties um, in, the, uh, in, in the Spanish scene. So having embraced uh, this, uh, this vote with the extreme right uh, creates this uh, um, dismissal from other political forces, which is not good. We need to, to, to count on a very a broad, a centralized uh, share of uh, of the Spanish voters uh, to build progress. That that's on one hand. On the other hand, I guess that what it is important once we confirm that uh, Feijo uh, is being back or is being. Uh, refused by the parliament, we need to, to, to confirm if Pedro Sánchez is an option for all the other forces in the Spanish, all the democratic forces in the Spanish scene, taking into consideration what he has already said, always in the context of the constitution, always in the context of building uh, the coexistence, the cohabitation of the different uh, regions, the different uh, sensitiveness in the country. So sometimes it's a little bit um, mistaken to focus on what it has not happened yet 
and to forget what we are assessing today, which is to what extent Feijóo is someone that can create a uh, coexistence in Spain or, on the contrary, good divide the country because there are so many people that feel that uh, um, the imposition of this extreme right uh, agenda is not what we want for, for our society. That's, that's my point of view. I'm confident that Pedro will manage to have the support of the great majority in case he has the opportunity to get this, this, this opportunity in the, in the Congress, in the Parliament, and always paying attention and being careful on how to build progress for all in the context of the Constitution. Because we hear from some parents of your own party, including Felipe Gonzalez, who used to be Prime Minister himself, talking of these terms from the Catalan party as blackmail. So look at this as a rebellion within your own party, potentially. So are you confident, even if he gets those votes from Junts, that the whole party is behind Pedro Sanchez? The whole party is behind Pedro Sanchez. What we have heard is four or five people that represented a lot for our country that are speaking against Pedro Sánchez and never against Feijó or what it is happening with the extreme right uh, movements in the in the country. So it's been a little bit uh, hurting for the party, for the whole members of the Social Democratic Party, because we did not expect this, this reaction from someone that we all admire and that made lots of things that were many very difficult at those days, but we still have many challenges which are difficult and it is not very honest, very loyal to speak thinking on uh, what they wanted at uh, those days and forgetting that there are challenges that have been renewed and that need to be perceived with the loyalty and the confidence that the Secretary-General deserves. So it's been a pity. The reaction of the party has been solid, robust and unified and uh, we feel hurt. But not only people that have responsibilities in the party, voters and sometimes humble voters, all people that, uh, that uh, did appreciate the principles of the Socialist Party have also expressed to Felipe González or Alfonso Guerra that they did not expect this type of old-fashioned comments coming from them. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.